Their feet are swift to shed blood. Romans 3.15 As one of the solemn indictments which God has made against the whole human family. There is no hint anywhere that Ben-Hadad had received any provocation from Israel. It was just his own wicked greed and bloodthirstiness which moved him. And this in spite of a serious defeat he had suffered on a previous occasion. 1 Kings 20, verses 1, 26 to 30. The heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Ecclesiastes 8, 11, and nothing can stop them from executing their desires and devices but the restraining hand of God. Neither solemn warnings nor kindly favors, as this man had recently received, will soften their hearts unless the Lord is pleased to sanctify the same unto them. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, not asked counsel of the Lord, for he was a stranger to him. We are glad to see no mention is made here of Naaman. It was with his servants, rather than the captain of the host. Chapter 5, verse 1, he now conferred. Fain would we hope that it was against the remonstrance of Naaman rather than with his approval the king now acted. Yet what daring impiety to attack a people whose God wrought such marvels. If he was impressed by the healing of his general, the impression speedily faded, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. From the sequel, it would appear that this particular place was one through which the king of Israel had occasion to frequently pass. Thus he evidently laid a careful ambush for him there. Thus it is with the great enemy of our souls. He knows both our ways and our weaknesses, and where he is most likely to gain an advantage over us. But carefully as he made his plans, this king reckoned without the Most High. Second, its occasion. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. Second Kings 6, 9 Yes, the king of Syria had left the living God out of his calculations. He is fully acquainted with the thoughts and intents of his enemies, and with the utmost ease can bring them to naught. The methods which he employs in providence are as varied as his works in creation. On this occasion he did not employ the forces of nature as he did at the Red Sea when he overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts, nor did he bid the king of Israel engage his enemy in battle and enable him to vanquish him. Instead, he prompted his servant to give his royal master warning and made the same effectual unto him. The lesson for us is important. 
God does not always use the same method in his interpositions on our behalf. The fact that he came to my relief for deliverance in a certain manner in the past is no guarantee that he will follow the same course or use the same means now. This is to lift our eyes above all secondary causes to the Lord himself. Observe that it was the man of God, not merely Elisha, who went with this warning. The Lord God revealeth his secrets unto his servants the prophets. Amos 3.7 Thus it was in his official character that he went to the king with this divine message. Just previously, he had used his extraordinary powers to help one of his students. Here, he befriended his sovereign. Whatever gift God has bestowed on his servants, it is to be used for the good of others. One of their principal duties is to employ the spiritual knowledge they have received in warning those in peril. How merciful God is in warning both sinners and saints of the place of danger. How thankful we should be when a man of God puts us on our guard against an evil which we suspected not. How many disastrous experiences shall we be spared if we heed the cautions given us by the faithful messengers of Christ. It is at our peril and to our certain loss if in our pride and self-will we disregard their timely beware that thou pass not such a place. The course which the Lord took in delivering the king of Israel from the ambush set for him may not have flattered his self-esteem any more than Timothy's was when Paul bade him flee youthful lusts. Yet we may perceive the wisdom of it. God was enforcing the king's responsibility. He gave him fair warning of his danger. If he disregarded it, then his blood was on his own head. So it is with us. The particular locality of peril is not named. The Syrian had said, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And, Beware that thou pass not such a place, was the prophet's warning. That the king would identify it in his mind is clear from the sequel. Yet, as there is nothing meaningless in scripture, there must be a lesson for us in its not being specifically named. We are plainly informed in the word that our arc foe lies in wait to ensnare us. Sometimes a particular danger is definitely described. At others, it is, as here, more generally mentioned, that we may ever be on our guard, pondering the path of our feet. Proverbs 4.26 Though Satan may propose, God will both oppose and dispose. They are passing on to the sequel let us link up what has just been before us with the typical teaching of the previous miracle. 
as the opening then of verse 8 and the connecting and of verse 9 require, and complete the line of thought set out previously. When a sinner has been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son, he at once becomes the object of the devil's enmity. But God has graciously made provision for his security and prevents the enemy from ever completely vanquishing him. Likewise, when a believer has been enabled to regain his peace and joy, Satan will renew his efforts to encompass his downfall. But his attempts will be foiled, for since the believer is now in communion with God, he has light on his path and clearly perceives the place to be avoided. So also, when by means of mortification the Christian enjoys an enlarged spiritual experience, Satan will lay a fresh snare for him, but it will be in vain, for such an one will receive and heed divine warning. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God, not Elisha, had told him and warned him of, and saved himself there not once nor twice. 2 Kings 6.10 Here we see the king's skepticism. Compare chapter 5 verse 7. He had some respect for the prophet's message, or he had disregarded it. Yet he had not full confidence therein, or he had not sent to investigate. It was well for him that he went to that trouble, for thereby he obtained definite corroboration and found the caution he had received was no groundless one. Ah, my hearer, the warnings of God's servants are not idle ones, and it is our wisdom to pay the most serious heed to them. But alas, while most of our fellows will pay attention to warnings against physical and temporal dangers, they are deaf concerning their spiritual and eternal perils. There is a real sense in which we are required to emulate Israel's king here. We are to follow no preacher blindly, but test his warnings, investigating them in the light of Scripture. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 And thereby we shall obtain divine corroboration. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? Verse 11 It never crossed his mind that it was the Lord who was thwarting him. Being a stranger to him, God had no place in his thoughts, and therefore he sought a natural explanation. Instead of recognizing that God was on the side of Israel and Blaming himself, he was chagrined at the failure of his plan, suspected there was a traitor in his camp and sought a scapegoat. 
And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. Verse 12 Even the heathen are not in entire ignorance of God. They have sufficient light and knowledge of Him to render them without excuse. Romans 1, 19 and 20 and 2, 14 and 15 Much more so is this the case with unbelievers in Christendom. This verse also shows how the spirituality and power of a true servant of God is recognized even by his enemies. The spokesman here may have been one of those who formed the retinue of Naaman when he came to Elisha and was healed of his leprosy. Yet observe there was no recognition and owning of God here. There was no acknowledgement that He was the one who revealed such secrets unto his servants. No terming of Elisha, the man of God, but simply the prophet that is in Israel. He was regarded merely as a seer possessing magical powers. Neither God nor his servant is accorded his rightful place by any save his own people. Third, its location, namely Dothan, which was to the west of Jordan in the northeast portion of Samaria. Significantly enough, Dothan means double feast, and from Genesis 37, 16 and 17, we learn it was the place where the flocks were fed. And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Second Kings 6.13 Even now the Syrian monarch was unwilling to recognize that he was fighting against Jehovah, but determined to remove this obstacle in the way of a successful carrying out of his campaign, even though that obstacle was a prophet. God allowed him to have his own way up to this point that he might discover he was vainly flinging himself against the bosses of his butler and made to feel his own impotency. Typically, this verse illustrates the persistency of our great adversary who will not readily accept defeat. As the Syrian now sought to secure the one who had come between him and his desired victim, so the devil makes special efforts to silence those who successfully warn the ones he would fain take captive. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host of infantry, and they came by night and compassed the city about. 2 Kings 6.14 That he had some realization of the power Elisha wielded is evident by the strength and size of the force he now sent forth to take him prisoner. Yet that he did not deem him to be invincible is shown by the plan he put into operation. 
Though the wicked are rendered uneasy by the stirrings of conscience and their convictions that they are doing wrong and following a course of madness, yet they silence the one and treat the other as vain superstitions and continue in their sinful career. The surrounding of Dothan by night illustrates the truth that the natural man prefers the darkness to the light and typically signifies that our adversary follows a policy of stealth and secrecy, ever seeking to take us unawares, especially when we are asleep. Fourth, its subject. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host encompassed the city both with horses and with chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse 15. Notice its subject is termed a servant, not of Elisha, but of the man of God. It is in such small but perfect details that the devout student loves to see the handiwork of the Holy Spirit, evidencing as it does the verbal inspiration of the Scriptures, God guiding each penman in the selection of every word he employed. This man, the successor of Gehazi, was new in the prophet's service and therefore was he now tested and taught. When a young believer throws in his lot with the people of God, he will soon discover they are hated by the world, but he is called upon to share their reproach. Let not his older brethren expect too much from him while he is young and inexperienced. Not until he has learned to walk by faith will he be undaunted by the difficulties and perils of the way. Alas, my master, what shall we do? See here a picture of a young, weak, timid, distracted believer. Is not the picture true to life? Cannot all of us recall its exact replica in our own past experience? How often have we been nonplussed by the trials of the way and the opposition we have encountered? Quite likely, this young man, see verse 17, thought he would have a smooth path in the company of the man of God, and yet here was a situation that affrighted him. And did we never entertain a similar hope? And when our hope was not realized, did we never give utterance to an unbelieving? Alas! How shall we do? Shutting God completely out of our view, with no hope of deliverance, no expectation of His showing Himself strong on our behalf. If memory enables us to see here a past representation of ourselves, then let compassion cause us to deal leniently and gently with others who are similarly weak and fearful. It should be borne in mind that the young believer has become constitutionally more fearful than unbelievers. 
Why so? Because his self-confidence and self-sufficiency has been shattered. He has become as a little child conscious of his own weakness. So far, so good. The great thing now is for him to learn where his strength lies. It should also be pointed out that Christians are menaced by more numerous and more formidable foes than was Elisha's servant. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against wicked spirits in the heavenlies. Ephesians 6.12 Well might we tremble and be more distrustful of ourselves were we more conscious of the supernatural beings opposing us. And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Verse 16 A realization of that will dispel our doubts and quieten our fears. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. First John 4, 4. Fifth, its means. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. Second Kings 6, 17. How blessed is this! Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah 26.3 There was no trepidation on the part of Elisha. Perfect peace was his, and therefore could he say, Fear not, to his trembling companion. Note, there is no scolding of his affrighted servant, but instead a turning to the Lord on his behalf. At first the writer was puzzled that the Elisha prayed rather than the man of God, but pondering the same brought out a precious lesson. It was not in his official character that he prayed, but simply as a personal believer to show us that God is ready to grant the petition of any child of His who asks in simple faith and unselfish concern for another. Sixth, it's marvel. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Verse 17. Proof was this of his, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. The invisible guard was now made visible to the eyes of his servant. Blessed illustration is this, that the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. Psalm 34, 7 And of, are they the angels of the previous verse, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Hebrews 1.14 Doubtless, the angels took the form of horses and chariots on this occasion, 
because of the Syrian horses and chariots which encompassed Dothan. Verses 13 and 14. What could horses of flesh and material chariots do against celestial ones of fire? That they were personal beings is clear from the they of verse 16 that they were angels may also be gathered from a comparison with Hebrews 1, 7 and 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. Seventh is meaning. Here we are shown how to deal with a young and fearing Christian. The strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Romans 15, 1. Many of God's little ones are living far below their privileges, failing to apprehend the wondrous provisions which God has made for them. They are walking far too much by sight, occupied with the difficulties of the way and those opposing them. First, such are not to be browbeaten or upbraided. That will do no good. For unbelief is not removed by such a method. Second, their alarm is to be quietened with a calm and confident fear not, backed up with, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And, if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 Showing their fears are needless. Third, definite prayer is to be made for the shrinking one that the Lord will operate on and in him. For God alone can open his spiritual eyes to see the sufficiency of his provision for him. Chapter 22 Fourteenth Miracle First, its connection. That which engaged our attention on the last occasion, grew out of the determination of Ben-Hadad to again wage war on Israel. After taking counsel with his servants, the Syrian laid an ambush for the king of Israel, but they had reckoned without Jehovah. He revealed to his servant the prophet the danger menacing his royal master, and accordingly he went and acquainted him with the same who attending to the warning, was delivered from the trap set for him. The heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled at this thwarting of his design, and, suspecting a traitor in his own camp, made inquiry. Whereupon one of his attendants informed him that nothing could be concealed from the prophet that was in Israel, and that he had put the intended victim on his guard. After sending out spies to discover the whereabouts of Elisha and learning that he was in Dothan, the king of Syria sent a formidable force consisting of horses and chariots and a great host of footmen to take him captive, determining to remove this obstacle from his path. The miracle we are about to consider is a double one and, strictly speaking, comprises the fourteenth and fifteenth of the chapters connected with our prophet. But the record is so brief and the two miracles are so closely related that 
they scarcely admit of separate treatment, and therefore, instead of taking them singly, we propose to consider them conjointly, viewing the second as the counterpart or complement of the former. It is a miracle which stands out from the last one which occupied our notice. That concerned the opening of eyes, this the closing of them. There but a single person was involved. Here a great host of men were concerned. In the one it was the prophet's own servant who was the subject of it. Here it was the soldiers who had been sent to take him captive. In the former he wrought in response to an urgent appeal from his attendant. In the other he acted without any solicitation. They both occurred at the same place. They were both wrought in answer to Elisha's prayer. They are both recorded for our learning and comfort. In connection with the preceding miracle, Elisha had prayed to his master for him to open the eyes of his servant, and we are told, And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Second Kings 6.17 That the prophet himself already saw this celestial convoy is clear. It was his own vision of them which moved him to ask that his servitor might also behold them. We may deduce the same from the immediate sequel. So far from being in a panic at the great host of Syrians which had come to take him captive, Elisha calmly stood his ground. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Proverbs 28.1 For since God be for them, who can be against them? There was no need for him to cry unto the Lord for deliverance, for divine protection was present to his view. Therefore he quietly waited till the enemy actually reached him before he acted. Here passing on, let us offer a further remark upon this celestial guard which was round about Elisha. That it was composed of personal beings is clear from the pronoun they that be with us are more than they that be with them. That they were angelic beings is evident from several passages. Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers of flaming fire. Psalm 104, 4. At his second advent, we are told, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8 The ministry of angels is admittedly a mysterious subject, one about which we know nothing save what it hath pleased God to reveal to us. Yet it is a subject which holds by no means an inconspicuous place in Holy Writ. 
It would be outside our present scope to explore it at large. Rather must we confine ourselves to that aspect of it which is here presented unto us. Angels are not only God's messengers sent on missions of mercy, but they are also His soldiers, commissioned both to guard His people and execute judgment on His enemies. They are designated the heavenly host, 1 Kings 22.19 and Luke 2.13, the Greek word meaning soldiers, or as we would term them, men of war, the militia of heaven. In full accord with that concept, we find the Savior reminding His disciples that more than twelve legions of angels, Matthew twenty-six fifty-three, were at His disposal should He but ask the Father for protection against the armed rabble that had come to arrest Him. It was a host of them in the form of fiery horses and chariots, Compare Psalm 68.17, which here encamped around Elisha, ready to fight for him. How mighty the angels are, we know. One called the destroyer, Exodus 12.23, and compare Second Samuel 24.16, slew all the firstborn of the Egyptians, while another slew 185,000 Assyrians, in a night, Second Kings 19.35. That their operations continue in this Christian era is plain from such passages as Acts 12.7-10, Hebrews 1.14, Revelation 7.1, Matthew 24.31, and so forth. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. Second Kings 6.18 The they looks back to the armed host mentioned in verse 14. Formidable as was the force sent to slay him, or at least take him captive, yet the prophet stood his ground and calmly waited their approach. And well he might. Could he not say, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about? Psalm 3, 6. And again, Though a host should encompass about me, my heart shall not fear. Psalm 27, 3. And should not the same confidence and courage be in the Christian's heart? Matthew Henry said, The clearest sight we have of the sovereignty and power of heaven, the less shall we fear the calamities of this earth. Unquote. Perhaps the hearer says, If I were favored with an actual view of protecting angels round about me, I would not fear physical danger or human enemies. Ah, my friend, is not that tantamount to a confession that you are walking by sight? And may we not apply to you those words, 
Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. John twenty twenty nine. Why, think you, my hearer, has God chronicled here that which assured the heart of his servant of old? Is this nothing more than a registering of a remarkable instant in ancient history? Is that how you read and understand the sacred scriptures? May we not adopt the language used by the Apostle in connection with a yet earlier incident and say, Now, it was not written for his sake alone, but for us also. Romans 4:23 and 24 Most certainly we may, for later on in that very epistle we are expressly informed, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Romans 15, verse 4 God has recorded that sight of those protecting angels for our faith to lay hold of. But remember that if faith is to stand us in good stead in the hour of emergency, it must be regularly nourished by the Word. If it be not, then the terrors of earth will be real to us, and the comforts of heaven unreal. Unless faith appropriates that grand truth, if God be for us, who can be against us? We shall neither have peace ourselves, nor be qualified to quieten the fears of others. Second, its means And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord. 2 Kings 6.18 That needs to be pondered and interpreted in the light of the previous verse, or we are likely to miss its beauty and draw a false inference. Very lovely was the prophet's conduct on this occasion. The presence of those horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha was virtually a sign that God had delivered these Syrians into his hands. He had only to speak the word and the angels had destroyed them. But he bore his enemies no ill will. Had our present verse stood by itself, we might have concluded that the prophet was asking in self-defense begging the Lord to protect him from his foes. But it opens with the word and, and in the light of the one preceding, we are obliged to revise our thought. It is quite clear that Elisha was in no personal danger, so it could not have been out of any concern for his own personal safety that he now sought unto God. Yet, Though he calmly awaited their approach, he did not meet his enemies in his own strength, for prayer is an acknowledgment of insufficiency. Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. At first glance it seems strange that he is referred to here by his personal name rather than as the man of God which the Holy Spirit generally used when he was about to work a miracle. Yet, the variation in this place 
is neither fortuitous nor meaningless. It points a blessed lesson for us, showing as it does the readiness of the Lord to hearken to the requests of His people. Though we do not possess the extraordinary powers of a prophet, yet it is our privilege to ask God to confuse and confound those of our natural enemies who seek our harm, and to subdue our spiritual ones. This incident has been recorded for our instruction and comfort, and one of the things we are to learn therefrom is that prayer avails to render our enemies impotent. Another lesson we should draw from it will be evident if we link up this verse with the preceding one, wherein we see another of Elisha's requests granted. Success in prayer should encourage and embolden us to ask further favors from God. Going back again for a moment to Elisha's situation, this petition of his was neither because he felt he was in any personal danger, nor did it proceed from any spirit of malice which he bore his enemies. Then what was it that prompted the same? Does not the miraculous healing of Naaman supply the answer to our question? When the king of Israel had rent his clothes in dismay, the man of God assured him that the king of Syria shall know there is a prophet in Israel. 2 Kings 5, 7 and 8 And when Naaman was recovered of his leprosy, he sought unto the man of God and before all his retinue testified, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Verse 15 And now this heathen monarch had sent his forces to take the prophet prisoner. Very well then, if he was not yet convinced that it was the true and living God whom Elisha served, he should receive further proof. It was Jehovah's glory which prompted Elisha's request. Weigh that well, my hearer, for everything depends upon the motive which inspires our petitions, determining whether or no we shall receive an answer. True and acceptable prayer rises above a sense of personal need, having in view the honor of God's name. Keep before you 1 Corinthians 10.31 And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. 2 Kings 6.18 That was an exact reversal of what took place under the foregoing miracle. There, the prophet's servant was enabled to see what was invisible to others. Verse 17 But here, the Syrian soldiers were rendered incapable of seeing what was visible to others. But let us behold in this miracle the willingness of our God to respond to the cries of His own, that He is a prayer-hearing and prayer-answering God. If we 
self-distrustfully refuse to encounter foes in our own strength, if we confidently ask God to render their efforts impotent, and if we do so with His glory in view, we may be assured of His gracious intervention. No matter what may be our need, how drastic the situation, how urgent our case, how formidable our adversary, while simple faith is exercised and the honor of God be our aim, we may count upon His showing Himself strong on our behalf. For I am the Lord, I change not. Malachi 3.6 He is the same now as He was in Elisha's day. Third, it's mercy. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. Verse 19 He did not abandon them in their blindness and leave them to themselves. Contrast Genesis 19.11, where God was dealing in wrath. Had they not been blinded, Probably they would have identified the prophet by his attire. But being strangers to him, they would be unable to recognize him by his voice. Spiritually, that illustrates a fundamental difference between the goats and the sheep. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.